if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, turn open to John chapter 14. If you need to use one, uh, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles, and John 14 will be on, I think, page 901. I am going to not read from John 14 right now, so I just want you to turn there, and I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5. So you make yourself to John 14, and I'll be in Romans 5. Paul writes, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 clearly reminds us that the gospel message that we have been studying together for the past five weeks is a work, an act of the entire triune God. This is really important to remember and to consider when we think about the gospel because depending upon what your background is, we can tend to, whether you're aware of it or not, focus on just one member of the Trinity and think, for example, that the other two had nothing to do with it. If you have more of a Reformed background, you come from a high tradition of the sovereignty of God, you might think about His sovereignty and power and His kingly rule. If you come from an evangelical church, then Jesus is your man, the, the cross work and His amazing righteous life. If you have more of a um, charismatic or Pentecostal bent, then you are about the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reality is all three were necessary for the gospel, but we can tend to focus on one and forget about the roles of the other. Regardless of what background you come from, as we read the Bible, as we study it, we're reminded constantly that it takes all three, all members of the Trinity are involved in this amazing gospel rescue story. Now, up to this point in our series on the gospel, we've talked about the gospel as God's gracious plan to rescue humanity, and it has its origins in eternity past. That was week number one. In week number two, we talked about how this gospel message has been made known to all of humanity. Everyone has access to it because it's revealed in the Scriptures. In the third week, we talked about how this gospel message that's revealed to everyone meets humanity and answers humanity's deepest question, and that, that why is humanity? On the one hand, there's so much potential and goodness, but we always seem to crash in a ditch and end up in our, our worst selves. Why are we this mix? And we talked about because we were made in the image of God, but we're fallen in our sin. We talked about in week four, though, that the gospel is even possible because of the unique person of Jesus Christ. And then last week, Jordan talks about why the gospel is possible, not just because Jesus is unique, but because of His amazing cross work. So those are the five weeks we talked about the gospel, but the question we have to answer is, how does this amazing reality, this gospel story that encompasses all of reality, how does it impact and affect us today? How is it connected to you or I? In other words, what links the purposes of God in eternity past to the historic, the work of Christ in the historic past to our present reality and our lives now and links us in such a way in a relationship with God that secures our eternal future? What connects the past, the present, and the future in a way that makes what Christ did 2,000 years ago uh, powerful and effective to us today and to anyone who would believe in Him? Well, that is the role of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly the role of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when it comes to God and the gospel, we've said this before, God the Father plans it, God the Son secures it, and God the Spirit applies it. 
Now, in the five weeks we've been studying this, we've already covered the first two. We've talked about God planning it and the Son securing it. So now we need to talk about this morning how the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, applies it. And to do that, we are going to ask and answer three simple questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? And why is this important? So very simple, three questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? And why is it important? So let's ask the first one. Who is the Holy Spirit? Before we jump into the correct answer, let's talk about who He's not and talk about some of the misperceptions because just like Jesus, there are misperceptions about the Holy Spirit. People tend to misunderstand who He is and who He's not, so let's talk about that. Number one, the Holy Spirit is not your kind of the crazy uncle of the Trinity that you might be embarrassed about or worried if He shows up, what's He going to do? That is not who the Holy Spirit is, and this makes sense given our cultural climate. Now, when people think about God the Father, they have a category for that. We've all had fathers, so you can easily understand what God the Father might be like. He's dignified, maybe not your dad is this way, but dignified, a source of authority and sovereign, you know, in command and in control. When we think about the son, we have a category for that. We understand the relationship of fatherhood and sonship, and particularly Jesus, or God the Son. He was this amazing teacher, miracle worker, compassionate and loving. We understand His work. But when it comes to the Spirit, we don't have those similar categories. And since we all live in the 20th, 20th, first century, the only real category experience we have with the Spirit has been by way of the charismatic Pentecostal movement in our last century or so. And you go, well, if that's what the Spirit's about, you know, people speak in tongues and doing all this kind of crazy stuff, and when He shows up, people do strange things, not so comfortable with the Spirit. But the Spirit is not the kind of loose cannon of the Trinity that does whatever He wants whenever. That's not what He is. We're going to talk a little bit more of that. But He's just not the crazy uncle and apologize if you are that uncle in the family, but that's not what he's like. Secondly, the Spirit is not an impersonal force or entity like karma or fate, right? He is not some obscure power that somehow you tap into if you're among the spiritually mature and elite and get some kind of anointing. He is not some impersonal thing like that. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is not uh, something floating around in a white sheet, like a ghost, okay? We had that, that bad translation in the King James Version that, you know, they, they translated Hagios Numata, Holy Spirit, as Holy Ghost. Not helpful. So, we tend to think maybe he's like this kind of, there's, there's Jesus, and we know what he looks like, right? He's a Caucasian guy, of course, for some reason. Uh, there's God, there's but now you got this white sheet hanging out. That's not what He is. Okay? So we have these misperceptions of what the Holy Spirit is. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, the church has been around for 2,000 years. Haven't you guys just figured this out already? But the reality is when you think about it, and this is where thinking of what we do, gathering, requires a little bit of humility. Christianity did not start with you or I or your parents' generation or your grandparents' generation. It, it didn't get mad. Everything just got dumped in our lap. Brothers and sisters for millennia have wrestled through what God has revealed in Scripture to us. And, and the gospel, as it has gone out throughout the world, it has impacted every culture, every continent, every language out there. And it's so amazing that we actually have an understanding of who He is. But it took a while to get there. Right, we live in the information age, and we assume back then they had these apostolic group chats. Hey, Peter, what do you think about this? I don't know. Go and ask. Go and ask. They didn't have that. They didn't have ecclesiastical Google Hangouts. They didn't have papal tweets. They didn't even have snail mail. 
Imagine the gospel spreading like wildfire, every culture being impacted, and the teaching transforming lives, civilizations being shaped by this. And they're still trying to figure out what does God's revelation in His Word mean for all these cultures. And they're putting this thing together without the advantage of all the communication tools we have today. So we need to be, have some humility and say, okay, let's give them a break, but also realize that what we've inherited is not for us to do with what we please. We don't get to just do whatever we want with Christianity. We can't just make it up as we see fit. You and I, if you're a believer, we are stewards of something that's been handed down to us, and our responsibility is to then entrust that to the generation that comes after us. But if we don't know any of that story, there can be a little hubris. We feel like we can do whatever we want with it. You realize, uh, let me give you a, a really short history of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, here we go. So it took us 800 years, 800 years to just kind of wrap our minds around what is the, the nature and essence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is just mind-blowing that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God would be given to humanity. It took us eight centuries to figure out well, what, what is His nature and essence like. Then it took another seven centuries, once they figured that out, to realize, okay, we understand who the Holy Spirit is, but what's His relation and what's His role compared to the Father and the Son? This was amazing to them. So what's His nature? What's His essence? Another seven centuries to figure out, well, how does He relate with the Father and the Son? And that's, that question was so significant that the church in the 10th century actually had a major split. The whole Western church and the whole Eastern church had to do with the fact that the, the Western church was more influenced by Rome and the Eastern church were influenced by Greek, the Greece. They had different ways of thinking, different ways of approaching things. They finally said, we can't figure this out, we can't agree, so we're splitting. That was one of the reasons. It took another several centuries, we get into the 15th and 19th century, before we even started talking about what's the role of the Holy Spirit in us, the church. So it took almost 15 centuries to figure out, well, who is the Holy Spirit? How's that all work? And what's his relationship, the Father and Son? And then what's he doing in the church? In the next centuries after that, so you had guys like George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, who were actually thinking of the Spirit's work in the church to change us and make us more like Jesus. It really wasn't even until the 19th century, the late 1800s, that we as Christians were starting to ask the question, how do we actually experience the Holy Spirit personally, not just corporately, not just on these macro levels, but what's He doing in our lives personally? And so in the 19th century, you had movements like the, the higher Christian living movement, and that's where piety became a real big deal. And then finally into the 20th century, so, you know, the 19s, I was born in 1970, so that century, you, with, on this foundation of all this thinking and understanding, it's no coincidence that you had this Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s, followed by the charismatic movement in the 1960s, and then the third wave movement in the 1980s. Now, all those movements were simply people recognizing and realizing, wow, there are aspects of the Holy Spirit that we've neglected, and we want to make those realities of our lives. Even to this day, the 21st century, we're still asking questions. This doesn't mean we didn't know what the Bible taught or we don't have confidence in it. I'm just trying to make the case again that, friends, the, stuff, the, the, the faith we've inherited is not ours to so just do with what we want. We have a stewardship, and that's why we spend time reading and studying and praying and thinking through so that we can live correctly as Christians connected to this lineage that goes all the way back to Peter, Paul, James, John, Andrew, 
Jesus. And we go, wow, Lord, thank you. As we look through history, we see how you've taken care of your church. So what do we know about him? Well, there's a lot we know, but I'm going to just make one point. This is what we know about the Holy Spirit. He is a divine person, the third member of the triune Godhead, the Trinity. He's not the crazy uncle. He's not a white sheet. He's not an impersonal force. He is a divine person, the third member of the triune Godhead. Let's look at that one at a time, because that's a, that's a healthy statement, and most of you already know that. It's nothing new, but it helps to re- remember the things that are so foundational. He, now, when I say he's a person, that's not to be confused with me saying he's a human being. This is not the place, again, the philosophical distinctions between being human and, a, and personhood, but there are distinctions. So when I say he's a person, don't think corporeal body extends the time and space, okay? But he's a person. We see attributes of personhood all over the scriptures referring to him. For example, you don't need to go there, but you can if you want. Keep your finger in John. Ephesians 1.13, this is what Paul writes. Paul's talking to the Ephesians about them being in Jesus. He says, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice, Paul did not say which is the guarantee of our Holy Spirit or it. He said who. When he's referring to the Holy Spirit, he said who is the guarantee. Okay, let me go to John chapter 16. Speaking of the Spirit, Jesus says this, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Four times, John's referring to the Holy Spirit in the personal pronoun, He, not it. The reason this is significant is, in grammar, I don't want to bore you, don't fall asleep, but grammar, grammar has these things called gender, right? This is why we call boats she. Oh, she's a beautiful vessel, right? You've heard that kind of thing. Grammar has gender. Certain things are male, certain things are female, certain things are neuter, okay? Spirit in the Greek language is a neuter, it's a neuter gender. But John deliberately uses masculine pronouns in reference to a neuter subject matter. What's my point? He deliberately violates the grammar of the Greek language to make a point. It's not an it. The Spirit is a he, and he does it four times in this passage. He, 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 who. The Spirit is a person. Furthermore, personhood is is verified by things like emotion, volition, intellect. And all three are referred to to the Spirit in the New Testament. So, for example his emotions. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot grieve an impersonal object. You cannot grieve concrete. Concrete does not care. It's just a thing. But the Spirit can be grieved just like the Spirit can rejoice. The Spirit has emotion. The Spirit also has volition. He makes decisions. In Acts 15, 28, when the church was wrestling with the gospel spreading throughout the world and the Gentiles coming in to understand Jesus and they were wondering, what do we do? Do we bring the Jewish Torah to them and the rules and regulation? And they prayed and thought about it and finally they concluded and they said this, it seems good to the Holy Spirit 
and we agree that we're going to put no greater burden on you. It seems good. You mean the Spirit was, it was, He was thinking, processing this, right? Entities, non-personal entities don't consider. It doesn't seem good to a piece of concrete for anything. And finally, the Spirit shows intellect. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus is saying, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. So He has emotions, He has volition, He has a will, and He has intellect. He's teaching, He's processing. All the attributes of personhood are referred to to the Spirit. It's not an it, He's a He. And this He is God. In Acts chapter 5, as the church is spreading, there's an amazing incident here where Peter, where the, the, the early disciples were very poor, and so a lot of them would sell many of their goods and contribute into a large pot so that nobody had need and that they would help each other out. One couple in particular, Ananias and Sapphira, thought, oh man, uh, Barnabas had just done this, and they saw how the congregation loved them and esteemed them, and, they, and Barnabas, and they thought, well, I, we want some of that esteem. We want to look good to the community. So they sold their property, brought it to the church, and said, here's the money from our property. But the reality was they held back a lot of the money for themselves. Now, no big deal. The, the problem was they were lying. They were saying, we've sold it, and here's all the money we made. They wanted the accolades. But the Holy Spirit wasn't going to put up with that in the church. And he was, they were lying, and they, he got busted for it. So this is what happens in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. But Peter said to Ananias, wow, notice this. This is like a, a, a teaching us of uh, where lying comes from. Why has Satan filled your heart? Okay, that's a sermon on, on being honest here. But anyway, so Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, Peter's point was, and you need to give all the money to the church. That's not what he's saying here. Whether they just gave a portion of it, it's fine. The, the thing was, they were misrepresenting themselves and acting duplicitous. And so Peter says, what's going on here? While the, the land remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived, contrived this deed in your heart? Here it is. You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. Notice, Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3? And in verse 4 he says, you didn't just lie to man, you lied to God himself. The Holy Spirit and God are interchangeable in Acts chapter 5. Paul the Apostle does the same thing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking to these Corinthians who, amazing group of converts who are just coming right out of the world into the church, and God is saying, you guys have been set apart. You're a holy people now. God dwells within you. So in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And just three chapters later, in chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So in chapter 3, he's making the case, you're God's temple, God's within you, and in chapter 6, he says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like Peter Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit and God interchangeably. The one, they are one and the same. 
So the Holy Spirit is God, a person, third member of the Trinity. That much we know. There's a lot more we know, but we're not going to get into that this morning. That's the answer to the first question. Who is he? He's a divine person, third member of the Trinity, very part of the Godhead itself. Now, what does he do? Here we go. Um, Let me give you the main point, define it a little bit more, and then exposit it. The main point, the main overarching goal of the Holy Spirit, what he does, and there are many things he does. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that. We're not even going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We're just going to talk about the overarching goal of the Holy Spirit, and the overarching goal of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He's about. That's what He loves to do. That's His mission. He wants to point everybody to Jesus Christ. He wants Jesus to be supreme. That's what He's into. That's what the Spirit's about. Let's define that a little bit. Let's define that phrase. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus... Number one, by placing him, and and the weird look of this is on purpose, actually. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. That's the main point. How does he do it? The prepositional phrase. He does it two ways. By placing us in him and making us like him. I forgot to put another space there, but see that prepositional phrase? By revealing him to us is how he makes us like him. Okay, I know that's a little bit tough on a Sunday morning, but this is how language works, right? So here's, my, here's, the, here's the statement, the Holy Spirit does what? And this is how He does it, and this is how He does it, and this is how He does it. So that's kind of the, the thing there. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He does it in two ways, by making us in Him, uniting us to Jesus, and He makes us like Him. How does He make us like Him? By revealing Jesus to us. We're going to leave that slide up there because that's kind of the foundation of everything else I'm saying this morning. Am I losing anybody? You are still with me? Okay. Yeah, some of you are not being very honest. Okay, um, <laughs> let's talk about it. So remember this, my friends. God is working out this massive plan to rescue humanity. Friends, whatever situation is going on in your life, whatever you see happening in the world, you need to realize that there is a story behind all these stories. And it's the story that God is working out His massive plan to rescue all of humanity, God is on a massive reality reset to make everything the way it's supposed to be. That's the gospel message, and He's not making it up as He goes along. We've talked about God the Father planned the gospel. God the Son secured the gospel. God the Spirit is applying the gospel. The question is, so what is the gospel? What is this massive plan? You know it. Humanity is separated from God, and we are wrecked by our rebellion and our sin, and there is no hope that we can redeem ourselves. If we're honest about it, we know it's just too massive, and the result of that rebellion and sin is all the anger, all the injustice, all the oppression, all the violence, all the despair, all the apathy, and all the 10,000 things that are wrong with this world. It's the source of that minor fight between a husband and wife on a Sunday morning to get to church. And it's the source of the problem we are having as a nation with North Korea. It's the reason people speed up when you put your blinker on to change lanes on the freeway. It's the reason someone will murder someone else to get what they want. It is everywhere, and it's a mess so much, so large we cannot hope to fix it. 
Hollywood cannot fix it. Silicon Valley cannot fix it. Washington, D.C. cannot fix it. Wall Street cannot fix it. Harvard cannot fix it. Entertainment, politics, finances, education, none of these can fix it. The problem supersedes all these things, yet it includes these things. So God, in His mercy and wisdom, sent forth Jesus Christ to do what humanity could never do, resolve the problem of sin and restore a sinful, broken creation to a perfect Creator who is to be acceptable before God and embraced by Him. That's what He did. So the question is, the million-dollar question is, How does what he did way back then and there in a culture and time and place so foreign to us now, how do we get in on that gravy train? How do we get in on the benefit of what he has done to restore humanity to its creator? That is the role of the Spirit of God. Among many other things he does, his job is to get us in Christ so we can be the recipients of all of his work. This is what the Holy Spirit's about. Now, I hope you're in John, because now we're at the point where I wanted you in John. You see, in John chapter 13, by the way, it's amazing. John 13, from chapter 13 to 21, the full last third of the gospel, the entire gospel of John is taken up with one week in Jesus' life. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Of Jesus' three and a half years of living, John commits a full third of his entire gospel on the last week Jesus was alive. That ought to tell us that the things that John writes there is pretty significant. Well, in John 13, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, I'm leaving. I am leaving this earth. And then he spends, uh, John chapter 14, 15, 16, records Jesus' interaction with the disciples as he reassures them, reassures them by and with the teaching of the Holy Spirit and his role in God's redemptive plan and in their lives personally. So John chapter 13, he drops this major bomb on them, but in chapter 14, 15, 16, he explains it. He says, my friends, my brothers, I'm leaving you, but before I do, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to do you a solid right now. I'm going to bring you the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, they weren't conversant with the Holy Spirit by that point. This was a rather new concept to these Jews. The Spirit of God was a very ethereal, unknown thing. So he says, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit. This was an astounding reality for them. John 14, verse 16, Jesus says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, just like me, another helper to be with you forever. Depending on your translation, some of the older translations, I think the, I think the KJV, King James says, I'm leaving you another comforter. Um, but I love this, it, it, a, a, an advocate, a parakletos, a comforter, helper to be with you forever. And then go to John 16, just two chapters over, and in the same kind of exchange, inner exchange, Jesus says this in John 16, verses 6 through 7. But because I've said these things to you about him leaving and having to go on, Sorrow has filled your hearts. We can understand that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think of this. Why was it to their advantage that Jesus would go away? 
Why was it to the disciples' advantage that he go? There couldn't be a conceivable reason why this would be advantageous. You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, his presence was limited to those who came into physical contact with him, and he impacted them externally from the outside. If you, if you wanted to be ministered to by Jesus, okay, you got to pack your bags and huff it over to Galilee because that's where he's located. Jesus, because of his incarnation, was physically limited to one space and time. I want you to think about the redemptive. Folks, we're talking about macro realities here. I want you to think about the redemptive scope of what God's doing. Because he has, at this point, he hasn't finished it in John 14, but we know it's going to happen, so let me speak of it that way. As Jordan so clearly talked about, because of the perfect rescue work that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, there's a, a, a sea change in how God and humanity now relates. You see, the biggest problem that separated humanity and God, that kept God away from humanity, not because God couldn't get there, but because of His love, He didn't want to be near humanity because we would die because of our sinfulness. That big problem, sin, had been resolved in Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. We've talked about this. He lived full obedience to all Scripture. There isn't a command in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, all those things that Jesus didn't fulfill. Think about that. There wasn't a sinful thought, action, desire. Anything he did was perfect. And he lived his whole life that way, and then he died on our behalf as a sacrifice. Because remember, crime needs to be paid for. Crimes need to be accounted for. We all get that. And the crime of humanity need to be paid for, and Jesus paid for it. But he also lived that exemplary life that humanity was supposed to, but we didn't. So he did all that, died, so that the problem of sin would be resolved. So anyone who was in Christ, so here's, here's where it gets kind of challenging. Let me explain this with a couple metaphors, sports. Um, when you are on a football team and your teammate makes the touchdown, does only your teammate get those points, or do all of you get the points? You know the answer, right? The whole team gets the points. Even if you've been benched that season, if your teammate got the touchdown and won the game, won the game you win the game. You understand that even though you didn't personally do it, because you're a part, you're aligned with that team, any of your teammates that do anything good benefits you. Anything your teammate does, that penalty happens to you too as a team. Right, and this sense of solidarity extends even to fans, right? How many times do people hear people say, man, we're going to the Super Bowl. You ain't going nowhere. You haven't run 10, 10 yards in your life, right? But we feel such a connection with the team that when my team is going, it's what? My team. We get that sense of solidarity, even if in that analogy it falls apart because it's really only them that's doing it. What about from a governing perspective? Okay. In our government, we have a house called the House of Representatives. We all live in districts, and we all have an individual who's your representative, and they go to the Hill, and they cast votes, and whether or not you like it or agree or disagree, they cast votes that represent you. And this is not a punt stump speech to make you vote. This is, the point is, we all understand the dynamic of, of representative um, of representation. So whether or not I like it, whether or not I agree with it, my representative made a vote and a decision, and that is mine as well in the eyes of our government, in the eyes of our people. 
My point is simply, we have an understanding of someone doing something that I benefit or suffer from. The Bible's had it from the beginning. Adam, when he failed, because I am in Adam's kind of trajectory, that failure is on me. And that's what Jesus is saying, look, if all of you would come to me, you're making your vestment, your allegiance is with me. You're saying, I am no longer wanting to be in this humanity that rejects God and is in solidarity with, with autonomy. I want to be in the humanity that, see, that accepts Christ, that sees Him as my representative. Then all of what He does comes to me too. Because of what Christ did, that obstacle was removed. He's saying, all of you who want to be in on me, you can do that. You can be part of this new humanity. So now, the Spirit of God, because that obstacle of sin was removed, God no longer looks at me or you, if you're in Christ, as a sinner in Adam. He says, all right, sin's been removed. Representationally, I see you as my son, Jesus. You're in him. That obstacle's removed, and now the Spirit can come. See, the Spirit couldn't come before because I am in sin. I'm plagued by it. I'm taking a bath in it. I love it. I revel in it. But when I say, no, 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 I realize I don't want part of that humanity. I want to be in Christ. It's okay. That, that issue's been resolved. Now let me bring you my Spirit. You see, that's why Jesus says, I've got to move on. It's God's progressive plan. Deal with the problem of sin. Now how do we unite them and everyone else historically all over the globe simultaneously transcend time and space? Jesus in his incarnation is limited in that way, but the Spirit's not because he's not physical. The Spirit can transcend time and space and work not just externally, but internally in the hearts of people. Friends, this is some thick, I mean, this is like theological steak right here, right? And we're just dripping some A1 on it right now. Um, I want you to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is Jesus is really unpacking this. Jesus says this, and I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him because He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live in that day, and you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Well, how does that happen? Stay there, and for, but let me go to 1 John 4, 13. John would later write, by this we know we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. How do we abide? Because He gave us His Spirit. How are we in Christ? How do we know that we are in Christ and in the Father and the Father in us? All this di amazing dynamic taking place, Jesus says, or John says, we know it because He gave us His Spirit. That's the role of the Spirit, to unite us to Christ, to transcend space and time. What happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago is applicable right now here in Laguna Hills in 2017 because the Spirit transcends all that. And if you're in Him, He's in you. And that's what the Spirit is about. So much so that Paul would write in Ephesians 3, according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the role of the Spirit. How is what Jesus did so long ago applicable to me now? I mean, because of the Holy Spirit. 
because the problem of sin's been dealt with, and, I, and I'm trusting in Jesus' work, and now the Spirit comes and unites me with Him and the Father. So the Spirit applies the work of the gospel to us. We are perfect before God because of Jesus' work, and we're being perfected before God and the world because of the Spirit's work. A couple last passages, John 15, 26. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, here it is, he will bear witness about me. So this is the job of the Spirit. He's going to bear witness about Jesus. John 16, 14, connected to that, Jesus continues and says this, the Spirit will glorify me. How? He's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, that's what the Spirit's about. It's about glorifying Christ, about revealing to you the mind of Christ, that you would find Christ beautiful and sufficient, that nothing else would matter, that Christ would be supreme, and in the words of Paul in Colossians 1, He would be preeminent because that's what He is. But so often we don't make Him that, but that's the Spirit's job. So I want Christ to be beautiful to you and your answer for everything. Not in the kind of shallow, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I think it's Jesus kind of way. No, but in a real understanding that Jesus is the answer for everything. So much so that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, because this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying is, as we are beholding the glory of God, as the ministry of the Spirit is happening in our hearts, and we're recognizing Jesus is supreme, He is preeminent, He's the most beautiful thing this world could ever possibly offer me, that very process of beholding Him is transforming you into His image, because that's the way He works, because this is the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is what he's about. We haven't even talked about the gifts he gives us. Every one of us here, if you are in Christ, you have a gift, and he intends for you to use it. We haven't even touched on that. We haven't talked about the fruit that comes from your life. We just want to answer what he does, and that's ultimately what he does, glorifies Jesus. Now, let's ask and answer the last question. Why is this important? And I ask for a few more minutes of your time. Normally, I come up here with 10 pages of notes. Today, I had 14. I should have told you that on the front end. Um, you know, I can imagine you're sitting there thinking, look, my husband, my wife, she, they, don't, they, they don't pay attention to me anymore. I, I, I'm broke. I can barely pay the bills. I, I'm facing a very uncertain future, and I, I am gripped with anxiety. I can imagine you were probably hoping for something a little more practical this morning, or at least a sermon that doesn't take you to 800 A.D., right? Friends, and this is what the Spirit's trying to get us to understand. Jesus he knows what it's like to come to a world, to a people, that of all people that should pay him attention, he knows what it's like to be ignored by the ones who should have loved him most. He knows what it's like to give of himself to a people who will not give back, will not pay attention or care. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a world of want and dependency. Jesus knows what it's like to face a future he'd rather soon avoid. He does. Remember that in Garden of Gethsemane. That's exactly why the Spirit has come. 
He sent the Spirit because He knows those exact realities. In these and the 10,000 circumstances of life, Christ needs to be your fulfillment, your security, your certainty. Because if that reality is not anchored in your soul, then whatever joy, whatever fulfillment, whatever confidence you might get is just one situational change from being stolen from you again. But if Christ is that anchored reality that that is the bedrock of your lives, yes, maybe your husband or your wife will continue to ignore you and not pay you attention, but you know that you will never be forsaken or never be left because the true husband of your soul is faithful and sure. Yes, you you may not all of a sudden get the money you need to, to make those ends meet, but you will know that everything that you ultimately need has been bought and purchased on your behalf through the life and death of Christ. Yes, you may not know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week, but you know the one who does, and he is steadfast and immovable, and he will not allow anything in your life that is not ultimately for your good. It's it's not to say situations are not important. Friends, they really, really are important. And that's exactly why he's concerned about the situation of your heart. Because if that changes where he dwells, if that heart changes, everything changes. If that doesn't change, then nothing changes. Let me just close with a, 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 an anecdote to a movie I saw this weekend with my family. My son, for some reason, wanted to watch Bruce Almighty. Anyone remember see that movie with Jim Carrey? It's a funny movie. Um, if you have young kids, probably not see it. We were surprised, but it was made in the early 90s, so they seemed to cuss more in the early 90s. I don't know. Um, maybe it's the movies I watched. But the point of the premise of the movie is that Jim Carrey plays a kind of disgruntled news reporter, and nothing in his life is going his way. Nothing's working out the way he wants it to. And he, he yells out to God, what's your problem? Why can't you make things work out the way I want them to? And then Morgan Freeman, who, who probably the best actor to play God, shows up and says, here we go. Here's the deal. I'm going to give you God powers. Everything I can do, you can do. And so the whole movie, the antics and the comedy is about Bruce, uh, Bruce Nolan is Jim Carrey's character. He's doing all these crazy things to make his life work out well, but then he realizes that in do, making his life work out well, everything else goes just sideways. And so finally, the climax of the movie is him crying out, I don't want to do this anymore. I want you to decide. I want you to figure it out and not leave it to me. And so Morgan Freeman shows up, and they have this great, amazing conversation that helps him see that God's perspective encompasses everything, and our little perspective often doesn't see nearly enough, and we shouldn't judge him on that. And so the movie ends, and I didn't think about this until this morning, but the movie ends with, you just feel like, oh, great, everything worked out fine, it's a happy ending and all those kind of things. But I realized this morning, if you watch the movie, and, and you're thinking, not a single thing changed about Jim Carrey's situation at the end of the movie from the beginning of the movie. Everything was identical. He went back to being the kind of human interest news store reporter guy that didn't get really a lot of respect or anything, and he went back to his exact same life. But what had changed was his entire perspective on the way God works in the world and in his life and that transformed everything. So significantly, when you leave the movie, you think like he got everything he wanted until you realize 
He didn't get anything that he wanted in the beginning. But what had changed was his heart, and that transformed everything in the movie. I'm not recommending you go see it, but the point simply is the importance of the centrality of the heart, and that's exactly where the Spirit, that's what he's about, to put us into Christ, into union with him, and to make us like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for truth that we get from your word. Lord, I pray that we are people who are anchored into Christ. Lord, these are mysteries we're delving into, but Lord, we trust because your word, and as we've learned weeks ago, we have confidence to believe your word, that we are in you, that because we have the Spirit. Father, this room is full of lives that have been radically transformed. Father, we once were self-centered, wanting our own authority and autonomy, and now we want to be submitted to your authority and see your sovereignty reign in our lives. Father, thank you for the ministry of the Spirit. Help us as a church to be open to what he is doing, glorifying Christ in our lives individually and corporately, and we thank you for that in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.